the Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. Each week we bring you in-depth conversations with some of the biggest names in film. It's January 27th, 2016. I'm Michael Odemark, one of the show's producers. Today we're sharing a roundtable discussion from the 25th New York Jewish Film Festival, which concluded yesterday with a screening of Natalie Portman's directorial debut, A Tale of Love and Darkness. In addition to over 20 premieres in the main slate, the festival also features free programs like filmmaker masterclasses and panel discussions. One of this year's highlights was a panel on film curation that explored the differences between programming for museums and film festivals and took stock of the state of modern cinephilia. Jens Hoffman of the Jewish Museum moderated the far-reaching discussion with Dennis Lim, director of programming here at the Film Society, Thomas Beard, founder and director of Light Industry in Brooklyn and Film Society programmer at large, Stuart Comer, chief curator of media and performance art at MoMA, and Chrissy Isles from the Whitney Museum of American Art. So let's go now to their discussion. You're listening to The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Want to experience the Film Society of Lincoln Center's rich slate of year-round programming in person? Then become a member today. Since the 1960s, the Film Society of Lincoln Center has introduced audiences to countless filmmakers from around the globe. Our extensive programming includes 5,000 screenings each year with new releases, retrospectives, special events, premieres, and annual celebrations like the prestigious New York Film Festival, New Director's New Films, Rendezvous with French Cinema, the New York Jewish Film Festival, and so much more. Supporters in their 20s and 30s can join New Wave, a membership program that provides year-round access to premieres, parties, and exclusive events. For more information about becoming a member of the Film Society, visit www.filmlink.com. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here. As Chrissy suggests, I think one major question is architectural. Um, obviously, a proscenium such as the one we're in now is very different than a black box, which is more perambulatory. But I think this also suggests we really need to think about how audiences are constituted in these situations. So the festival-going audience tends to be somewhat different from the gallery-going audience. Um, even an anthology audience is maybe somewhat distinct from the light industry or the Lincoln Center audience. Um, but I frequently think there's a great piece by the artist Sharon Hayes where she took Patty Hearst's Symphony's Liberation screeds and memorized them. And then she reads them to camera aloud. Um, but each time she makes a mistake, because she reads them from memory, the audience corrects her. But you don't see them correcting her, you, you hear them. Um, but she suggests that the piece should be shown one of two ways, either just simply projected, in which you see her face almost like a Warhol screen test headshot, or as a stack of then VHS tapes. Um, and on the top of the tape, each tape, is a label just saying, please watch and pass it on. And I think this also suggests this new culture of radical new forms of distribution, of dissemination, um, that has taken cinema in a completely different direction than what you know, it had been even a decade ago. And so I remember at one point uh, going to the Pompidou, and there was a very good show called Mouvement des Images that was created by Philippe and Michaud. Um, they invested a huge amount of money restoring fantastic films from Bruce Conner to Man Ray, et cetera. 
Um, but they were shown much like paintings on the wall. They were on a fairly small scale, and they you know, literally dotted the wall down a long corridor. And unfortunately, even though it had a huge amount of visibility, they functioned more like paintings. People just paused for a moment to watch a few seconds and then moved on. Next door, there was a tiny room with very old computers showing the entire video database of the Pompidou, where I watched students sitting for up to three hours watching this material. So there's also a question about you know, terms of engagement. And as Christy suggested, oftentimes in the museum model, it's less than ideal because people do have scattered attention spans. They walk in, they walk out, they don't necessarily commit. And clearly, with video installation and the emergence of the loop midway through the 20th century, um, we had a situation where the beginning, middle, and end were no longer sacrosanct. It could be scrambled, or you, know, you could drop in or out at any given point in a, in a piece, and in many cases, artists designed their films, so that didn't really matter. But for many filmmakers, it does matter profoundly, and so all of us, I think, on the stage have been invested in coming up with different models um, for how to create better terms of engagement, thinking about how our audiences do coalesce and come together, and what the terms of engagement are between those people. Um, we, we we, we program cinemas, uh, and, and we, we, we find films to show in, in, in the black box of the cinema. Um, what's been interesting for me is to really think of, of, of late, is to, is to um, just, just confronting the, the prevalence of uh, moving images in, in the museum and gallery space, to think about what, which of these works actually do translate uh, uh, to the cinema, um, and, and, and how. Um, I think maybe we can leave it at that. And then yeah, I mean, just sort of echoing what everyone else has said, I mean, I think that uh, what you're dealing with are, you know, at a museum versus a cinema, two fundamentally different economies, you know, of attention. And I think that um, increasingly the, the sort of those those boundaries uh, are, you know, blurring between the white box and the, the black box. I think that uh, increasingly we find things that we would expect to, we you know, previous generations may have seen in a cinema displayed, um, say like on a, a loop in uh, a museum gallery. Um, and uh, I think this blurring of boundaries is sort of heartening in one way because it means that uh, the sort of tent of, you know, kind of uh, modern contemporary art is uh, getting bigger and bigger. And um, works which previously may have existed at its margins or not kind of been a part of the kind of discourse at all are, are now a part of it. Um, and so I think that's something to be optimistic about. However, I think that um, one as sort of a, as has already kind of been said, um, one should be kind of cautious that not everything kind of can uh, translate. And just because you can sort of put something on a loop uh, in a museum gallery, you necessarily should. Um, one thing that I also thought about recently is how, um, uh, even though the art world does like to think of itself as a big tent, and indeed it is, you know, you can um, uh, you know, see this film in a museum gallery or that you know, uh, uh, noise band. Um, uh, at a museum, et cetera, that um, there is a limit. You know, it's not that like now the the sort of boundaries have been erased, and all films that we previously had understood to be in uh, cinema can now also be seen uh, in a museum. Um, for instance, uh, no one would blink if uh, an artist decided to put in a group show, uh, say like a Godard, Emery Mayville um, sort of a TV video work from the '70s. But uh, would anyone put, say, a Howard Hawks film, you know, like an artist that was totally central to uh, someone like Godard, um, uh, you know, in that same context? I think uh, most, li most likely not. So I think that, that the sort of Howard Hawks Godard thing is a good, uh, I don't know, it seems like kind of emblematic to me of um, how uh, the sort of um, boundaries are, are, are blurring, but um, 
as I joked with a friend earlier, as Wittgenstein said, a blurred boundary is still a boundary. I think that um, art curators are notoriously badly educated in cinema, the history of cinema, and the art world are not, uh, the, the art, most art curators are not cinephiles. They're woefully ignorant of cinema. They uh, accept dance far more readily than they'll accept film in a, in a museum situation. I've never understood that. I think it's bizarre because cinema is so much closer to art than dances, one could argue, I, mean, I would argue. Um, and I also think that there's a, there's a real mistake. What happens is that one art curator will take something and run with it, and then other curators just follow them like sheep. And I've never understood that either. And there is a sort of trend for certain art curators to show certain films, like you say, and not certain others. For example, Warhol's Empire does not make sense in a gallery. The whole point of Empire is that you go into the cinema and instead of having a one and a half hour film after which you leave, nothing happens except the passing of time and light. And it's still there and you can go and have a hamburger and come back and it's still there. If you just remove that and put it in a gallery, it doesn't make any sense because the gallery is about objects. So if you put a film that's trying to talk about anti-narrative into an environment that's full of objects, everyone just goes, great, a projected object. You know, and in the cinema, it's radical. And so the radicality of that is totally lost. Another example of a really, I think, problematic um, um, presentation of film in a gallery is Derek Jarman's Blue. I went to the premiere of that with Derek Jarman, and it was very dramatic because you sit in the cinema, the lights go down, the narrative starts, but all you see is blue. And after an hour and a half of sitting bathed in blue light, blue from 35 millimeters, so your eyes can take it, you, 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 you start to think about what it's like to be in Derek Jarman's head going blind, what it means to hear something and not see something, and for, for, the, for the film to be entirely driven by the narrative sound. That's lost in a gallery where people go, cool, and they wander in five minutes later, they wander out. It's completely lost. It's, it's, you might as well not have bothered, to my mind, that, that there's such a, a diminishing of the meaning of the work and the experience of it. And I think there needs to be a much more careful thought by art curators when they, when they put films in galleries. And I think there needs to be um, also an opening up by the film world and cinemas about what constitutes the experience of a narrative. For example, why not have you know, little short films introducing uh, longer films? Short films, I mean, I know they do uh, sometimes, but you know, to have a, a kind of opening up um, of, of, of by programmers, not, not present company accepted, but you know, in general, to things that aren't just conventional narrative programs. And also from the art world, they really need to go to college and learn a little bit about the history of film. I mean, I would second everything Chrissy just said, although I do sometimes wonder too if there, I mean, it's a big question taking films that don't normally get presented in a gallery space. Um, and it is a way of exposing them to exactly the art audience that hasn't been educated in cinema or in film. And I think I'm still constantly asking myself, you know, how can we, 
I mean, this is certainly what I was doing at the Tate, like really trying to engage with all the art schools in London to try to create a consortium so that these kids were coming and looking at experimental films. And already you've seen the fundamental rise in PhDs on experimental cinema in the last decade. And it, there's no coincidence that it coincides with the rise of Ubu Web and YouTube. I think for the first time, people finally had access to this material, whether they were in Kansas City or wherever they were. You didn't have to be living in downtown New York going to anthology to see the material, although one could argue it's not the ideal conditions, but if you're in Kansas City, it's still something to be able to engage with. So similarly, um, I mean, I have huge problems with the way Warhol's films in particular have been presented in art galleries. Um, but that said, I, you know, at what point do you have to make certain sacrifices, or how far are we willing to compromise or sacrifice? Maybe not at all, but you know, what are the solutions, I guess, to ensure that we can create a more active, more meaningful dialogue between what happens in the cinema and what happens in the gallery? And I would also say, again, back to architecture, if you look at most museums, if they have a cinema at all, it's normally doubled as an auditorium, and it's normally down in the basement by the bathrooms, very far from the galleries. So the hierarchies are very clear. Um, and unfortunately, just as Hollywood standardized you know, there had been 101 ways to present a film, and then immediately it was standardized. Similarly, the art world, as Chrissy suggested, took you know, the unbelievable possibilities of presenting the moving image in the art space and turned it into the black box, um, which, as you suggested, I think, has become incredibly formulaic and, and standardized. So I think these are all things we should be actively fighting against as curators and as artists. Do you think that, um, I'm just picking up on, on what you said, uh, that, um, that um, the presentation of moving images and film and video in the gallery space is as equally standardized as it is um, in the environment of film, in the world of film, where I see many more standards being applied. I feel like that perhaps within the gallery space there are more possibilities, or I've seen more possibilities. I'm thinking, uh, you know, I don't know, you, you might have worked with Steve McQueen at some point or the other. How particularly is about these installations? It's a whole crew coming in, um, and it seems like every Hollywood director is fine with having his movie screened on Netflix on a little laptop, and there's no problem jumping from the big screen to the small screen. When in the case of someone like Steve McQueen and his video work, um, there's a complete perfection about how big the space is, what type of carpet, what type of paint, what type of projector, what type of sound, and so on and so forth. Well, because um, commercial film is big business, so um, the theatrical releases are only the first, the first step. And whereas it used to be going to DVD was pejorative, now it's just exactly what's uh, expected because that's where the money lies. But there aren't d even DVDs anymore. It's just like for commercial films, you know, when you go to Netflix, Netflix, it's it's really you can only get independent films on DVD mostly apart from a few classics. So if you go to Netflix and you just, you'll just get the, all the streamed, most recent, most commercial films, and that's it. So it's all about money um, in Hollywood. Whereas, you know, someone like Steve McQueen, you know, from the very beginning, Steve's installations have been extremely um, carefully um, calibrated to ensure a very precise experience of the projection in space, including the texture of the floor, or the, the, the reflectiveness of the black floor and the walls mm. and the, you know, everything. Because you know, for those film loops, it was very much about um, something that was very immersive and something very different. When he, when he moved towards um, uh, independent filmmaking, of course, then, then he goes on to Netflix like everybody else. Um, although all filmmakers want their films to be projected, they want people to watch them in the cinema, they want the, the most embodied form of viewing, which is a large 
scale projection with a, a great film print, preferably, you know, on 35. I mean, so it, it, it's a very different situation because again, you know, S Steve's uh, film um, loop installations are, what are they, 10 minutes long as opposed to the feature film. But, you know, with the moment you get into the film industry, it's all about money. And, and the more commercial your, 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 um, your environment as a, as a filmmaker, the more it becomes about money. I mean, the art world's about money too, but in a very, very different way, and, and it's peanuts compared to what goes on in the film industry. Dennis? I, th I think we think about standards maybe slightly differently in a, in a cinematech uh, context, you know, because we, we try to show work in the format that it was originally intended, you know, here and I think at many places, like at MoMA and Anthology, um, if a film was made on film and if a good quality print is still available, we will project it. Um, and I, you know, I think this this question of, of, of standards, it does, you know, it's not just Steve McQueen installing in a gallery. I mean, we've, the last few New York Film Festivals, we've worked with really perfectionist filmmakers, people like Paul Thomas Anderson and David Fincher. And I can assure you, like every single step of the way, uh, there is really extensive uh, discussion with entire te technical teams of people about the quality of presentation, uh, testing prints. Um, you know, test, testing DCPs over and over again. So I think it does matter. Uh, for, sure, the film in, in three months is gonna be on Netflix and people are gonna be watching on their phones, but I think, I think it does matter. And I think, you know, this, Chrissy's point about, yeah, sure, you, if you, a Warhol or a Jarman, they're, they're not gonna work in a gallery, but I think there are also other problems. I've seen pieces that, that should work in galleries, but where the conditions of the exhibition have been so problematic, um, you know, when the image is completely washed out, or this, like you know, just light bleed and noise bleed, and and, and it's just really not um, not a way, I think, to experience moving image work. Uh, I, I cannot imagine that an artist would have imagined it, that the work would would be presented that way. I don't see it so much here, but I've definitely seen it, you know, in big big shows at at, at major institutions um, in in Paris. I've seen it at the Venice Biennial repeatedly, you know, where it's just it's just very it's very frustrating, I, I think, as a viewer. Um, yeah, I, uh, on the subject of that, uh, <laughs> those sort of poor conditions, even uh, um, at an institution that will remain nameless, there was, I think it was like a, it was a, uh, it was a, a Paul, Sher it was a Paul Sherritt's film was being shown that was such totally out of focus. And the people were just like coming in and out. And my colleague, Ed Halter at Leiden History, just sort of like walked up the projector and was like, <laughs> and sort of put it back into focus. But I think that uh, seems, uh, um, unfortunately, uh, uh, not necessarily a very rare instance. But also, Jens, to your, your point about, um, uh, you know, uh, Hollywood. You know, a filmmaker um, readily like having their um, work, uh, say, like on on Netflix or you know, uh, kind of viewable and like you know on a, a phone or a laptop. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's not necessarily. Uh, um, I think that like allowing your work to be on DVD or on Netflix or so forth is not um, an abdication of standards on the filmmakers. I think um, what that represents is uh, something akin to like seeing a reproduction in a, a book. You know, like if I see like a, you know, um, I don't know, a Franz Vest sculpture in a um, in a catalog, it's not like seeing the sculpture, but it does you know give you some uh, sense of the work. Likewise, like um, seeing something on your laptop is not like seeing a beautiful uh, new 35 millimeter print at Walter Reed, but I think again, it's something that can uh, kind of approximate. Uh, the work. So I think that in one, uh, um, they're, yeah, they're just sort of two, uh, two different ways of 
of looking, I think, for you me. You just mentioned that experience where you went to see a film and it was out of focus. And I would argue that for certain films, watching it on a laptop or on a phone is the same to me as another film being out of focus, just because it distorts a certain experience that I try to have when I watch certain films. Um, just to give you an example of, it's sort of like related to that. Uh, currently at the Jewish Museum, we have an exhibition app called The Power of, of Pictures, which looks at the uh, beginnings of film and photography in the Soviet Union. Um, and the point was to curate or make an exhibition that sort of looks at the um, similarities between the work and the aesthetics um, of the filmmakers. Um, new cameras were introduced, both for still photography and for infofilm. And we came to the conclusion at the very end that we basically had to build an entire cinema into the gallery space because we just couldn't come up with an appropriate way of showing those films in their entire length. I would have loved to have them among the photos so you could really you know, make um, the investigation and see where the similarities uh, align. But ultimately, it's sort of like it's, it was a defeat to a certain extent. You know, no, we just can't show them in any other way. So we built a cinema you know, a little bit smaller like this into the gallery space with a, with a real schedule. Well, maybe you know, what, what you're talking about is, is also interesting because it's about accessibility because um, with uh, cinema tax and programming, you, you maybe have two opportunities to see a film. Uh, most films in New York City are screened twice, uh, maybe four times, uh, but you have very few opportunities to see it. If, you're, if you've got a gallery show, a museum show, uh, they're usually on for three months, so you have three months of opportunities to see something. Uh, I do think it's interesting in um, Oakley and Wazel's documenta, uh, there was um, Ulrike Ottinger, who's of course one of Germany's foremost independent filmmakers, uh, showing, and next to her, I think it was Steve McQueen. And so Ulrike Ottinger um, had built this great seating structure, not, not unlike this, and a little bit smaller than this, by about a, th a third. And it was an eight-hour film. And you could come and go. And because it was an eight-hour film <coughs> and there was that fluidity, people were coming and going, but people were being exposed to Ulrika Ottinger's films who'd never seen her work before. They, they, it, it was fantastic. They'd never heard of her. And the art world was just riveted. And, of course, the work is fantastic. And so they, you know, that, that, that um, openness that she had with this very long film really opened things out. And it was, it was kind of paradoxical and interesting that next door, practically, was an artist making a film asserting the beginning, middle, and end um, viewing experience. And you could not go in to that film halfway through or even five minutes after it started. So you had to wait and go in at two or three or four. So you had, you know, because he was from the art world, she was from the film world, but they were both um, working in opposite uh, ways to how you normally experience their work. But it was, it was great to be able to see Ulrika Ottinger's work um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a museum situation in a raked seating kind of situation, but in a, in a way that made it possible to see it over a period of three months, you could go back and back and back and back, as opposed to say, you know, the two or three times you might get to see them in New York, and if you just are not in town or don't, you, you can't go, that's it. So it's also a matter of exposure to a certain extent. Maybe, um, I don't know, but Cinematex could show things more repeatedly, um, and, and, and that may, may, may be one big shift in terms of Steve McQueen, too, I think he was one of the first artists who really, really emphasized the importance of sound and went to great lengths to install um, the acoustic elements, you know, in a way that were really, really intense. So that, for me, his, his cinema is intensely corporeal, and so to give it that phenomenological, very physical intensity, 
um, you know, this sound is, is articulated very, very carefully. And I've noticed too, with, like, you know, with Rachel Rose, who the Whitney's showing at the moment, but particularly her show at the Serpentine recently in a very difficult space with lots of brick walls with curved ceilings and, you know, a nightmarish acoustic environment. But they went to great lengths to um, really consider the sound and of how those works were installed. And I think yeah. there is a new generation that's far more sophisticated and far more attendant to the importance of the connection between sound and image. And I'm, I'm really happy to see that. Taking, being taken more seriously now. I mean, you were the first person to mention sound, Dennis. So, I mean, I think, obviously, in a cinema, you can control it much more carefully. When you approach um, a film exhibition and a museum, or when you approach programming a festival or a program within a festival, how would you say that these two approaches um, are similar to each other, and where are they different? If you work as a curator for in, within a museum and you're making an exhibition about film, <coughs> what is the difference in your curatorial approach than when you would curate for a film festival? I, I like being involved with the film festival here and also having worked in the museum. I noticed, for example, that there's certain things that um, where I would think, okay, last year we had um, a series of anti-war films, and I was very interested in relationships between different film directors. Um, different aesthetics, different cameras, um, <clears throat> and um, I noticed that nobody really paid attention to those sort of like ideas. Um, it was not really of a, a, as a, a concern, whereas that would matter to us as curators working in a museum quite a lot. The thing that I love about festivals is they tend to, again, it gets back to this question of the audience, they tend to consolidate a group of people that really do try to go to as many of the screenings as possible. They go to coffee afterwards. There are a lot of discussions. And there's this continuity across the program, which allows you to articulate a series of screenings as an exhibition, I think, a little bit more meaningfully somehow. And um, I mean, again, just to clarify from your introduction, so MoMA actually has two separate departments. I run the media and performance department, and there is a separate department for film. And I mean, the convenient explanation is that the film department really focuses on cinema and the festival model, and we focus more on the gallery, um, although those are not always mutually exclusive. But MoMA does have several festivals that we run in the context of a museum. It's a totally different audience than the one that comes for the galleries, by and large. Um, but I really miss actually like, you know, living in Europe and going to Oberhausen and Rotterdam and these small scale festivals that really focused on artists' film. I mean, in New York, we're spoiled for choice with a number of venues from Lincoln Center to Light Industry to Anthology and you know, Whitney, MoMA, et cetera. So, I mean, there's a lot going on here, but there's something to be said for these small cities with small festivals and the critical mass that you can generate with that. And particularly um, at Oberhausen in 2008, uh, the curator Ian White, who sadly passed away two years ago, but organized a program called Kino Museum, where he explicitly looked at the connection between the history of cinema and the history of the museum space, by and large really doing a lot of research on Iris Berry, who was the first, the first curator to run the film library at the Museum of Modern Art. Um, but he really tried to think about how the architecture of the cinema space, the auditorium, could offer radically different possibilities for thinking about memory, about recording time and history and images. Um, again, audiences and community and, and what kind of society we're building and communicating to in the cinema. Um, so that was one festival that, for me, just continues to have a profound ripple effect. I think that's right. I mean, I think that film festivals do a little bit like art fairs, sort of focus people's attention, people come, there's a lot of discussion, there's a lot of um, uh, ancillary programs that, that, that happen around 
the main um, festival. And that, that, that's something that the kind of festivalism of both art fairs and, 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 and film festivals is, is a very um, strong catalyst. Uh, and that's very different from a, a museum exhibition where, where you might um, um, have a sort of film program that goes with the show or is part of the show, um, but is understood in a much broader three-month context as opposed to two weeks or something like that. Uh, but I know with the American Century, when um, uh, Mark McElhatton, Bradley Eros, Brian Fry, uh, Mark Weber and I co-curated um, a film program that went with that over a period of six months. It was very intense and it was almost like a festival. And so, so many people came back so often that people had to like seats that they, they were sort of, someone sitting in my seat. Because people just came back again and again and again and again. And it became like this, this rolling, almost like a stage and everyone had their 10 minutes on the stage. And it was, yeah, that, was, that was almost like, it felt like an extended festival. And I think when you have a very sort of um, um, focused, intense situation that's almost like a festival, you can also recreate that, that kind of sense. I think it's. I think it depends on on the festival. I agree with Stuart that like a festival in a place like Rotterdam, Oberhausen, is very different than having a festival in New York City. You know, and I feel like we we here at Lincoln Center we have a festival essentially like every six weeks. You know, we had the New York Film Festival and we do new directors, new films with MoMA, and we're obviously in the middle of the Jewish Film Festival, but we do have one. Um, Almost every month there is a, a, a film festival, so obviously you know this attention is is, is somewhat diffuse, um, and I think audiences just. There, there's, there's just um, an expectation that that festivals are primarily just, you know, this it's a showcase for new work. That's what people are coming to see. Whereas I think if you're if you're organizing, uh, you know, a, a, um, an exhibition of film and video it, at MoMA or at the Whitney, you would probably be doing it around a, a theme or an idea. And I feel like that that would be, you know, that would be what would, was driving uh, the show. And I feel like with with this festival, which we work on together every year, Jens, it's just, you know, we are showcasing. Um, work from the past year, which we think is interesting and you know has, has something to do with the Jewish ex experience. And I think we've tried to expand that, like with the anti-war program last year and with the anniversary program this year, to to sort of you know enlarge and enrich the conversation with with retrospective uh, components. Um, but most of these festivals, I think audiences come because they 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 want to discover new work, and I, I think that 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 dictates how you how you program it. Yeah, also just following up on what Chrissy said, I think that we now maybe uh, increasingly see exhibitions that have a festival-like dimension in the sense that they um, are not just a sort of static entity that like someone comes in, they see, and then that's the sort of end of their kind of uh, aesthetic encounter, but rather it's something that unfolds over time. It's something that um, changes. It's something that you would kind of return to again and again. Um, I actually remember someone, I can't remember who it was, but there was actually some critic for the 2012 Biennial um, that was grousing about how uh, since every week there was a different like uh, you know um, series of films on view and every week there were different series of performances or like what do I have to come to the biennial like five times to see the show and I thought that was such an interesting criticism because no one would say look at the calendar for the New York Film Festival go to five of um, you know any number of screenings and say well I basically didn't even go to the New York Film Festival I only went five times like that that, that uh, um, uh, it was it was it was interesting to me the sense that like if you couldn't just sort of take in you know you couldn't just swoop in consume the exhibition and leave in its entirety and leave that somehow this was like a frustrated experience because you would never um, uh, say the same of like a film festival. I don't know. This is just a kind of 
tangent, I guess, but I'm just thinking about something I've always wanted to do, and I haven't, I don't know if any of you have ever done this, but I'm just thinking about a model that doesn't really adhere to anything I've seen in the Vesta model, the museum model, or the, the Cinematheque model. But just thinking of somebody like Nathaniel Dorsky, who had a retrospective here recently at Lincoln Center. But I do get frustrated um, seeing, having to see like six of his films in a row. I just want to see one of the films and not look at anything else for the rest of the day. I would love just once to show a five minute film once and that's it. And you, either you get the chance to see it or you don't. And it goes against all the common sense that Chrissy just outlined. But I mean, there's just something so intensely luxurious and just to have the luxury of space, you know, on either side of that image when we're so inundated with moving images all day long on our phones, on the street, and you know, sometimes I wish we could just slow things down a little bit and really um, use the cinema to that kind of purpose, to that kind of end, where you really change the nature of how you spend time with an image in motion. Um, I think that would but be that, oh. that's what, uh, it's funny because the history of film as it unfolded at the Whitney was that uh, the, the, the Breuer building was built in 1966. And in 1968, uh, when Marsha Tucker was, was curating there and she brought on David Beanstock um, who's a filmmaker to curate films and they started by curating artist films as part of the um, Anti-Illusion show and then David Beanstock was curating films there until his untimely death and then John Hanhart took over over, uh, over 20 years until I came and what was very interesting um, was that the Whitney ran out of money to build a theater in the basement, um, of course. And, and so uh, the, the, the um, film and video gallery on the second floor became the, the space where films were shown and it had a, pro a projection booth, but it was very much like a, a gallery space and John Hanhart alternated between installations and film programs. And so when I came in, I, I did the same and increased that sense of showing films over a three month period or a month period all day so that the, the art audience wandering in would come and see them. So, for example, when we did a Robert Beaver's retrospective, we had his films, which are 35 millimeter, and they're not on, there isn't sync sound, so we, we had to rent an extremely uh, complicated um, sound sync machine, and it was very, but they were very beautiful, and we had a couple of them, two or three of them, short ones, just showing, um, um, clearly with space in between, so they're not film loops or installations, but showing all day, every day. So if you wandered in to see the show next door, right next door, a painting show, whatever it was at the time, you could walk in and see a Robert Beavers film, or two or three. And what was interesting is how many people sat and watched them. And Roberta Smith came, because she was coming for something else, walked in, fell in love with the films, asked to see all of them, because we were having specific screenings at weekends of all the other ones, and then wrote two-thirds of a page on Robert Beaver's films in the New York Times in the fine art section. Beautifully written, actually, and, and I just thought, wow, that's interesting. It's just about exposure and context. So that's the other thing, is if you do it properly and you have almost like a cinema within the galleries that the general public can walk into, but, but that it really, there is a sense of really sitting and watching them, not just walking past them. Um, and so you, you, you make it so that people want more, and then you have screenings of the rest of them, um, that that was really interesting to me because then we had an article in Art Forum and then you start to see his work seen beyond the context of just one particular community extended outwards. Um, and so that was a little bit of maybe what you're talking about and I would love to see more of that. Um, and uh, but, I, but it requires kind of curating who, who th that really understands the seriousness and importance of creating the black box, if you like, of cinema within the white cube and having a, a stronger dialogue with film programmers and, you know, with cinema spaces and in a way that maybe it was like 
in the 70s, I don't know, when it seemed to be a more kind of holistic, interdisciplinary dialogue. Oh, yeah, I mean, um, I mean, the Charles Burnett's Killer of Sheep um, had one run initially in New York, and it was at the Whitney. So, like, when you look, read the first New York Times review of Killer of Sheep from the 70s, like, that's where it was. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, Lucifer Rising premiered, Ken Thanga's Lucifer Rising premiered at the Whitney. Skazag, it was the first feature film the Whitney ever showed and that was a documentary about Viet Vietnam vets becoming addicted to heroin and then uh, Winter Soldier was premiered at the Whitney too uh, with all the, the, the people who were in that documentary so you know there's a very interesting back and forth that was taking place during that period and uh, we're coming to it again in a sense a number of film festivals in New York like you say you have festivals all the time and there's also the, I made a list of them actually. There's an incredible number of festivals, not ex not exclusive. I won't even bother to read it out. But there were so many just in New York um, all year. We could spend every week going to a, one festival or or another. So in a way, we're almost saturated with different kinds mm -hmm. of film viewing um, situations, from rooftop films to Lincoln Center to MoMA to Anthology to Light Industry to Microscope to the Whitney to everywhere. I mean, there was so you know my, um, peephole cinema. And, Bushwick Film Festival. I mean, it's 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 really, actually, very exciting how how um, prolific film screenings are um, in in this very sort of dispersed um, post post internet viewing environment. It's actually quite exciting that that that's, that things are still very event driven. And I think there's also there's also a, new, a renewed interest in materiality, like the New York Art Book Fair at Pierce One. There were like thirty five thousand people in three days. So I think there is an interest in, in actually um, experiencing things beyond simply opening your laptop and you know, looking at Netflix or whatever. I just wanted to quickly, I'm just thinking because I am in the company of some extraordinary writers about cinema. And the problem, I mean, the fact that it was a major rarity that Roberta wrote the review of Robert Bieber's exhibition at the Whitney, and that shouldn't be the case. I mean, you know, that sort of film, you know, New York in particular had a moment when, you know, we had Jonas Mikas and Jim Hoberman when people champion, championing experimental cinema in mainstream publications or quasi-mainstream publications. That doesn't really happen much at the moment, unfortunately, and maybe I'm slightly more bitter about it just from London where it really doesn't happen. It's marginally better here, but I also think this is something else just as creators and programs and institutions that I would like to see is put more pressure on the press to find writers who can actually, I mean, there are a lot of great writers about cinema and about art, but there are not a lot about artist cinema or experimental film. And I do think it's frustrating. It's one of the reasons that it, it is holding back a public or, you know, students are not educated about this in art school or in any kind of school. So I just think it's one of the great public services we all need to work on, you know, whether it's through festivals or exhibitions. And, it was interesting when I worked on the Whitney Biennial that um, the performances that took place as part of that biennial, many of them got individual reviews. That did not happen for painting, video, film, or any other medium within the, within the exhibition. And so it's funny how the press adopts these different models for certain kinds of art forms. And I do feel that cinema does require a context that most people are not equipped to, they don't have the tools to read it. It's one other thing which I think is important to think about in relation to what we're discussing, which is film archives versus museums, museum collections. Um, for example, I brought Jonas Mikas's film, Lost, 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 into the Whitney's collection. And Jonas said, well, you're the first museum in America to do so. And I was really shocked. Um, and th there is also a, a big divide between film archives and museum collections. And 
from the very beginning when I arrived at the Whitney, I'm, I, I said that I wanted to include film as part of the Whitney's collection. Um, because in the stories that the Whitney's collection is telling about American art, how could you not include film? It is, it, how could you not? And um, to the Whitney's credit, they, they listened and they agreed, and the fact that film is not editioned was okay. Um, but there was, there was a lot of administrative adjustments that had to be made to, to, to accept that fact. And you know, slowly we're building. For example, I'm, I'm arguing through the collection that abstraction entered American art through film in the 30s with Mary Ellen Butte and others and Robert Breer, and, which is the case. Um, so where does abstraction lie in American art? It, it lies in film first. And, and so, you know, th there is also a much greater dialogue, I feel, needs to happen between film archives and museum collections because with permanent displays, uh, rather displays of the permanent collection um, that all museums have, you know, it's, it's, it's really extraordinary that, that there really aren't um, films in most American museum collections at all. And I find that really astonishing because film is an art form, it's art. And then I, one last point on that okay. front, sorry, and I'll sorry. shut up. But um, I, I think what's interesting too is that if film programs do exist in museums traditionally, they are within the context of the education department, not the curatorial department, um, which there are hierarchies around that, I think. But it also is interesting to me um, in the sense that cinema can be a sort of pedagogical model as well as an exhibition model. And it's very rare. I mean, of course, there are gallery tours and docent tours and exhibitions, but I would say the majority of the time that you see a film, there's a Q&A afterwards, or we bring the director to introduce the film. That's not the case with paintings. It's not like you go and the artist introduces the painting every time you see Sometimes it. Sometimes you have artists giving tours of the exhibition. That's true, but that happens once in a three-month exhibition, you know? And I think, you know, nine times out of ten when you project a film, maybe not quite that often, but you know, there is a, frequently when one projects a film, there is some sort of discussion around it. And that's another interesting aspect, maybe again going back to the proscenium situation that cinema finds itself in so often, but um, it's something that's interesting. I just want to come back to some, a point you made earlier, Stuart, about um, you know, wanting to only see one Dorsky film and, and leave it at that for the day. I, I, I think about that all the time, especially when we're putting together shorts programs, which is sort of like for, you know, for, especially for experimental work, that is, that, that's how these, these works are shown. And there is an expectation that you have to show them in a program that totals at least an hour people will buy a ticket and they will consume at least five or six of these pieces, which is not necessarily always the best way for these films and videos to be, to be seen. Um, and uh, it's, I don't think anybody's really figured out the best way to do this, but you know, we have um, within the New York Film Festival an experimental film section, um, which used to be called Views from the Avant-Garde, it's newly renamed projections, and we show dozens of films uh, in a three-day period, and, and it is actually a very, we, we wrestle with this a lot. Like, is this really the best way to show all this work? And we believe in all this work, but you know, we find ourselves having to put these programs together to look for themes that sometimes I think actually take away from the power of individual works, um, and then to expect viewers to watch them, um, you know, to watch really literally dozens in, in, in a day if you come for two programs. Um, and, and yeah, I, I don't know that we've really figured out the best way to show um, short work, um, experimental work uh, in, in, in cinemas either. 
was also, I mean, I, when I was still in London, I was on the board of Film London, and they had brought, I was the first person to sort of sit on the board to really advocate for artists' filmmaking, because it was largely um, a commercial or an industrial film enterprise. And, I mean, we frequently, I think we all found ourselves aliens <laughs> to one another, and like, it was exactly the Warhol example that I would sometimes use, that, you know, artists might make a 30-second film or a six-hour film. They're not necessarily interested in a, conforming to industrial standards and doing a 70-minute feature film. And it took a, months to get the board's head around that fact, you know? And, the, I mean, t film is about time, but that doesn't mean that it has to be a standardized form of time. And I think, you know, that's, again, what we should all be encouraging ourselves and artists and our curatorial colleagues to engage with, I think. I mean, in the case of the New Film Festival <coughs> projections programs, maybe, for example, those programs could be repeated mm -hmm. in, you know, s cinemas in Brooklyn or here or after the festival that there is, um, so there are other opportunities to see it rather than just those days and that's it. Um, I don't know, it's again that thing of how how, how many opportunities are there to see something? And of course, there are so many films to program and see that, you know, I mean, how can you possibly do it? Or, or, or even online or something. You know, how do you, how do you increase the number of opportunities to see something? I mean, the Jewish Museum just did an exhibition on television and the rise of, of modern art. And MoMA used to have a pretty interesting ambition to get more involved with television. And like every day I walk by NBC and Rockefeller Center on my way to work just thinking, oh God, I wish we could figure this out and crack this. Um, because you look at what Channel 4 was doing in the 80s in London or, you know, I mean, there have been moments or live from off center on PBS here in the 80s. There were moments when not just film and cinema, but, you know, certainly video and performance were um, really championed through, um, through television, and I mean, I, I, just getting back to this idea of how museums and cinematech should get a little bit more radical in terms of their investment in new forms of distribution. I mean, we're in a digital world, it's not hard anymore. It's just somehow we have to kind of figure out, I think, how to make those links between the gallery, the cinema, online, and then, you know, and beyond. Hey there, this is Eugene Hernandez, Deputy Director here at the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Thank you for listening to our podcast, The Close-Up. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to get new episodes delivered to you every week. You can also rate and review the show on iTunes, which will help us reach more cinephiles like you all around the world and help us make this podcast even better. Thanks again for listening, and now back to our show. So recently, Shia LaBeouf did a film marathon. I'm just curious to know um, if any of you went and if you have any comments on it. I feel like an image of Shia LaBeouf kind of like dotted my Facebook feed for a few times like during this this period, but I have to admit that's my um, that's the extent of my knowledge of the uh, uh, the project. Yeah, mine mine as well. <laughs> you want to tell? Do you want to tell us more about it? Do you want to tell us more about it? It's all his movies backwards. It was his movies, backwards. and he watched them. I, did I go? No, did he watch oh, it? Yeah, he was there. Oh, okay. In reverse chronological order, or literally chronological backwards? Chronological. <laughs> Back, oh, that would have been more interesting. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about technology. Uh, you know, a lot hasn't been mentioned. You, you know, you mentioned that there's a lot of film festivals, for example, in New York, but it seems like film is becoming, or cinema, a more niche thing. Fewer people go to see movies that aren't big blockbusters. More filmmakers are selling their films straight to Netflix, like the first film at Sundance. People aren't shooting on film, they're shooting on digital. 
Where do you think we're going to be in 10 years if these trends continue and everything just aggregates into the notion of content and not film as an art form? Well, I think that um, cinephilia um, is alive and well, you know, and, and, uh, live in, no, and living in New York City. I mean, I think that, uh, in, I mean, outside of New York, you know, perhaps uh, um, uh, the situation is different, but I feel like because of technology, um, people everywhere, certainly outside of New York, now have access to works that they never um, would have otherwise. And to be sure, it's not like an ideal context, but the fact that um, some teenager in South Carolina can, you know, download a, you know, torrent of an Avon Rainer movie and like watch it in their bedroom, I think is incredible because I think that it then um, sort of opens up um, uh, the sort of like desires of the film audience and the kinds of works that they want to see and in turn the kinds of, uh, you know, screenings that they uh, will go to. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I think, and also I feel like that in, in, in New York, the, um, there's a you know a, an extraordinary kind of proliferation of like micro cinemas and sort of you know uh, uh, DIY kind of film venues, which I think also um, uh, you know speak to uh, this kind of reinvigorated uh, cinephilia. And um, yeah, so I, I think that uh, I, I know I, I remain optimistic about <laughs> the film enduring as a as an art form. Yeah, I'm not I'm not too pessimistic either. Um, I think there are still people who are figuring out ways to work, continue working with film if they want to. I think people are figuring out interesting things to do with digital. Um, and I, I think we're actually at, at, at a very exciting time um, in terms of production. Um, and I think, um, you know, I, I agree that there's just an abundance of, of choices in, in not just in your many major cities. I think I, I, I do sense that Cinephilia is alive and well in, in real life and on the internet. I mean, Steve McQueen is making a project for HBO. Ryan Tricartan's career began on YouTube, not in the White Cube. Um, I mean, I think those are some things pointing in the right direction, that artists are exploiting different formats, different platforms and technologies. Um, if the art world is as ignorant about cinema as Chrissy suggests, which I completely agree with, um, we're really ignorant about the history of new media and computer-based art forms. Um, there's a show about to open at the Whitechapel called Electronic Superhighway that's one of many shows that's going to begin to sketch out, you know, speculative histories about how we might approach this. Of course, I mean, already we've lost huge chapters of the history of video art. We've lost even more histories of streaming and online art forms. So this is getting pretty urgent, and I think to have some historical sense of where we're coming from, you know, I think that's a, a key job we all need to address as much as we start launching headlong into the digital age, which we are doing, but I think um, artists are always going to get there first. And Kodak has just brought out a new Super 8 camera, which seems incredibly counterintuitive. And although it's <laughs> more expensive than it, it, those using a Super 8 camera in the 60s um, would have had, it's still, it's interesting, because I think it's not so much, I don't think it's about nostalgia, I think it's about materiality. And, and I think that the, the renewed interest in materiality, I mean, the screen, as in, you know, the iPhone, I, iPad, laptop, etc. the screen is cold. You can just do two things with it. You swipe and pinch and that's it. So it's not that tactile. Um, people want warmth. They want materiality. A little bit like the book has come back. And I think that that's another um, really important um, and interesting development, that, that kind of resurgence of an interest in materiality. I mean, and the building of the new Whitney, when we were having lots of discussions about both the theatre and also the film and video gallery on the fifth floor, which has a projection booth because I wanted to replicate what was 
at the Breuer because it works so well. We're still figuring that out, but it has a projection booth. And in both cases, there is um, 35 millimeters um, Super 8, 16, as well as digital. And those um, analog forms are really important. And expanded cinema <coughs> is something we're going to be programming and is coming more and more into the collection. Um, and you know, Microscope Gallery just did an incredible expanded cinema program um, across several weeks that was just fantastic. So I think that I, I agree with everybody else. I think cinephilia is very much alive and well, but not, not in, in this kind of retrograde, nostalgic kind of hanging on to a sort of elegiac hanging on to film that maybe characterized the 90s. I think it's just the, the result of um, the digital having been and the internet having been thoroughly absorbed and people um, um, going to material um, uh, forms not as a reaction against it, but as a complement to it. I think history does repeat itself. And if you look at Impressionism, you know, which was in some ways analogous to the fetishism for 16 millimeter when it was effectively obsolete and we had all these exciting digital technologies in front of us. And similarly, you know, I mean, Impressionism, plein air painting was happening at the height of the Industrial Revolution. Soon afterwards, you had Cubism and boom. So I think, you know, we're in the middle of an unbelievably exciting period with infinite possibilities to destroy and recreate narrative images, how they are circulated, how, what kinds of surfaces they appear on. I mean, it's endless right now. So I think we're, you know, it's already exciting and I, I'm very optimistic it's going to get more exciting. This is uh, primarily towards Mr. Comer. I went to the Bjork exhibit last year and thought it was interesting that you have the music video which pervades the domestic space within the black box and the white cube and how it wasn't really exhibited with around the white cube on the gallery space, but you had it within the cinema. And I was wondering how did that come to the decisions of exhibiting within the black box? I didn't curate the show, so I wasn't involved in the decision making, but um, effectively, again, getting back to the question of sound, in any exhibition where you have multiple moving images, of course, you do need to isolate sound as much as possible. And because there were several rooms in that exhibition that had very intense and loud soundtracks, it was purely a means of isolating them from one another. So. Hi, I wanted to thank you all for engaging us in this conversation. And as you were talking, I kept thinking about different ways of watching that you've all brought up and changes in platforms that have in some ways democratized viewing of cinema as art or as another viewing experience. But what I'm thinking back to is when I first, I'm, I'm a film archivist and I teach cinema, and when I first started going to movie theaters in the 1980s on my own, the democratization of the formal space of the cinema where I could actually sneak in and out of more than one movie in a day at a multiplex or at a festival where you could go from, from theater to theater and see more than one film. Um, that has become more restricted, I would say, post-1990s. You're talking about kind of a different business model, and I'm wondering, you know, to think outside of the box, yet still being inside of a box that is actually more strictly controlled by, by a monetary impulse, um, rather than particularly a love for, I mean, how do, how do we address that? I know that's, maybe that's an extra large question, <laughs> but we can't really sneak in and out like we used to. <laughs> And it's a very different viewing experience to do that. Yeah, I always loved the surrealists, like André Breton, his circle, would literally wander the streets of Paris and 
make collage films by like spending five minutes in each theater and just kind of walking through space. But that's probably not entirely feasible these days. I mean, when you see films at the Whitney, it's uh, as part of the the um, entry fee to the whole museum. So, you know, it's part of a larger issue about whether you pay to go into museums or not, which you don't in England, but um, you do here. So, because they're all private. So um, that's you know, in our case, um, you know, you see films as you know, like you see a painting, you just see it in time um, across a period of time, but. You know, uh, I, I think, you know, keep movie seat tickets low in price is the answer. Just one last point about economies, because I know Jens also wanted, I think, us to address the difference between a curator and a programmer. And I mean, this is a broad generalization, but I would say largely, I mean, I guess Chrissy and I represent curators. Um, you know, we're responsible for collections. We do collect film in a different way. And then again, we get back to, I mean, we could go on and on about debating the differences between like a museum film archive and a film collection or an art collection. Um, but make no mistake, I think there's still a misassumption that film and video is still relatively cheap compared to other mediums. And of course, painting does command higher prices, but film and video are extremely expensive in the art market now and getting more so. And a lot of filmmakers look to the art market now, although I agree what Jens suggested that the film industry, there are larger dollar amounts involved, but a lot of young filmmakers are looking to the art world um, as a stream of revenue because it's much easier. Uh, and this is why, to some extent, even like multiple screen formats and other things have become arguably more popular outside of the art world just simply because people are trying to find other ways to find capital. Um, so sort of jumping off that question, um, each of you here has a distinctly different format, just a bit, that you're devoting your work and, and life to. Um, and there has to be a certain amount of attraction to that specific work that each of you has. And I'd just be interested to hear from any of you that want to share what it, like why it is that you're devoting yourself to a museum or a cinematheque. Um, just, I don't know, it interests me. Uh, when I was at high school in London, there was a film society and, and um, I was too young to, to go, but I sneaked in. And the film they were showing when I sneaked in that day into the classroom was Tarkovsky, uh, Tarkovsky's Solaris. And I just, it just blew my mind, because I'd at that point only seen, you know, Snow White, The Sound of Music, and, um, <laughs> and um, my father's home movies. And I was just completely and utterly both Sort of stunned, and also it felt very familiar, and that really started me off. That's what started me off, sneaking into a sneaking into a classroom watching Tarkovsky with with, with the with the, the projector on a on a desk. Um, <laughs> so that's where that's where my passion started, and and then when I was at the Museum of Modern Art in Oxford in England, I trained under a director. It was my first real job, and I I trained under a director who was very um, forward-thinking and who did not make a distinction between a film um, and a painting. For him, they were the same, and a photograph and everything else. So he integrated into the exhibition program. So the first show I worked on with him was an Eisenstein retrospective with the Eisenstein Museum in Moscow. And then we did a Philip Guston painting show, and then you know we did a Lichtenstein show, and then he was working with Kurosawa. So to me, it was just all one great 
artistic endeavor curatorially and that's what he taught me so I never saw a distinction between one or the other or hierarchies because he didn't and intellectually and philosophically he really didn't um, and that's what I tried to then apply when I came here I watched way too much MTV in high school um, <laughs> and then I think there were two films I was introduced to probably my freshman year in college. One was Jean Dielman by Chantal Ackerman, and the other was Mothlight by Stan Brakhage. And they totally turned my world upside down and made me completely rethink what an object was, what cinema was, what light passing through material was. Um, and then when I moved to London, and I had the opportunity to start programming, creating films at the Tate, but it was at a moment when a lot of the so-called independent cinemas were closing in London, and the Lux, which was the home for artist cinema there, lost their cinema. They lost their public funding for it. And I was just watching this unbelievably rich culture collapsing. And I just wanted to do anything I could to save it. And I think, you know, similar to what Chrissy suggested earlier, it just frustrated me endlessly that people did not know this history, did not experience these films, and I just wanted to show them. Um, I guess for me, the, the film epiphany uh, was also the starting point for um, the book that Jens mentioned in the introduction, the book that I just wrote on David Lynch. Um, I saw Blue Velvet at a much too early age. Um, <laughs> I think I was 13 or 14, and I saw it on VHS and was very confused. Um, and, uh, but the confusion was, was a very productive kind of confusion, uh, and I, I, it really, it's a film that just stayed with me for many years, um, and I think it's a film that taught me like, to not really be afraid of confusion and, 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 and how that could be a very exciting way to, to, to grapple with a work of art. Um, and in terms of just working here, I've only been, I've been here um, coming up on three years. I, I was a critic before, um, and for me it just seemed like um, a different way to do, you know, for, as a critic I was interested in, what was really motivating me was just this, you know, the, this, um, the sense of discovery that you could always be discovering and rediscovering things um, and, and as a critic um, I think you can you know be an advocate uh, and you can also create context for things and, and try to recontextualize things and I think the work of a film programmer is, is very similar in, in, in that regard. Um, I also had a kind of uh, there was a kind of key moment for me that happened at a very young age it was when I was uh, 18, I just moved to Austin uh, to go to college, and within a couple of weeks of moving there, I saw an ad in the paper that said, you know, volunteers wanted for this festival, Cinema Texas. I had nothing to do <laughs> and didn't know, really know anyone, so I just signed up for everything. And, um, you know, little did I realize what I was uh, kind of getting into because, you know, I, you know, Chantal Ackerman came to the festival and Todd Haynes, and, you know, uh, there was uh, like new work by Seth Price or Waleed Rod or, uh, you know, uh, Leslie Thornton or a um, uh, or Godard Mayville's France Tour du Tour Two, Tour Two Children, or Video Art uh, Video Databanks, you know, survey of um, the first decade of video art. Um, Force Field performed, I think, that year. It was just I was completely unprepared that movies could be this way. And um, but beyond the work that I, I mean, th that that was incredibly influential, and I think it definitely kind of launched my interest in experimental cinema. Um, but what also um, really moved me about the whole enterprise was that it was this. A uh, festival that had a kind of massive curatorial ambition, um, yet it kind of realized it on a very human scale, and um, that's certainly shaped um, how um, uh, Ed and I have uh, kind of how how we began Light Industry and how we've you know run it to this day. It's a cinema, 
you know, it's basically just a room and uh, a grid of folding chairs, a projector, and the audience. You know, it's this sort of cinema reduced to its most essential variables. You know, um, there's uh, there's the art, there you know, um, its viewers, and everything else has fallen away. And um, this is very important to us because um, you know that it have this sort of DIY ethos because it sort of um, uh, suggests itself as a model that could be um, imminently replicated. You know, anyone could do this. Um, a cinema could happen anywhere. And it was, um, so yeah, there's, um, uh, there's something very deliberate about the fact that, you know, about why we sort of build the cinema every week and um, every week uh, take it apart. We have uh, any more questions, yeah? Um, as curators and programmers, what are some um, proposals that people look at you and they thought you were out of your mind. We can't curate that. We can't program that. And what are usually the reasons why you can't? As curators, you're supposed to push the envelope, right? And get ahead of the curve as far as where things are going, I'm assuming. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, Nobody's ever said no to me. <laughs> but that's partly because they didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> so they sort of did, but I don't think they realized quite the extent to which I was going to do whatever I was going to do. And that tends to be how I operate. It's just like, well, we'll do this. And they go, fantastic. And then, wow, it's this. Um, and I think that, that basically, um, at the Whitney, there's a lot of trust. Um, our director trusts us and our chief curator, Scott Rothkopf. And so there's a great deal of trust in, in our judgment and it's like, well, you know, you do this um, and good luck and um, here's the proposal you've made. We, we agree with its broad remit and, you know, um, go. And, and that's how I did the American Century. Uh, I brought in fantastic co-curators and we just went wild. I mean, we just, we were all nighters and we were just, I mean, it was crazy. And, and, and it, it pushed the boundaries of a lot of things. But, but uh, you know, that it, it, you, you, you should try and do that as much as possible within your curatorial um, remit because that's how you, you shift art history. That's how you make a contribution. That's how you open things up because history is always being rewritten as is film history, art history. And it, it's being rewritten. It's got nothing to do with the ego. It's, to, it's got to do with um, how you how you can make a difference in that moment and see things that haven't been. You know, I mean, I'm trying to kind of recreate certain things from the 20s at the moment that haven't been seen since the 1920s and which are completely invisible. Um, I don't just want to repeat what other people have done because that's done. It's done and it's fantastic. And what have I got to add to the conversation on that level? I've got this to add because this hasn't been done yet, or this hasn't been seen or it hasn't been put into a certain his art historical, film historical context. Let's draw new things out. So, you know, every curator um, operates in a different way and curators have different voices and that's what's so great. And that's why uh, we're all actually very collegial within New York, which I think is something very exciting about New York, which is that, you know, that there's such uh, a density of fantastic work being done and everyone's in dialogue with each other and doing something different. And it's also that dialogue within the city because you're also working locally as well as hopefully nationally and internationally when you're doing something. You are in New York City 
and, and you know, we're profoundly aware of what each other is doing and trying not to overlap, but to kind of complement it in a sense. And we're all working in these very different ways with the individual context of our institutions and um, their histories with, with what we do. Um, you know, when I took over from John Hanhart, I thought, well, that's incredibly big shoes to fill. Um, who am I to come and fill them? Okay. What I'm going I'm to go for this and really try and add to what John's do, done and really try and you know, take the next step and what will those steps be and I talk to everybody and talk to Jonas Meekers, talk to young artists, young filmmakers and really try to, to kind of draw out new, new relationships and new things and as, as a curator you've got to, you're only as interesting as your next project, you know, you're building the history but it, it's, it's got to be a constant forward movement and you, I never hold on to... Um, uh, something I've been known to do. I mean, now that's over. I'm inter interested in something else now, and always kind of, it's always about the future, um, and and trying to really look at things in a new way, and and also take the temperature of of what's going on now, and what what artists are doing, what filmmakers are doing, what people want, the different viewing conditions, as Stuart was saying, and that's really important as well. And not to imagine that something was relevant five years ago is relevant now. It's not. It's changing, and it's changing more and more quickly. So um, one tries to use one's experience and uh, as, as well immerse yourself right up to your neck in the community and what everyone's thinking about and doing in order to, to actually bring that out and, and show it to the audiences. There are three things that have been formative and shaped cinema more than I think most people would like to admit. One is military technology, two is government agendas and propaganda, and three is pornography. And when Chrissy mentioned peep shows, you know, which are such a crucial part of the beginnings of cinema, and of course there was an element of eroticism and pornography there. If you think about Amos Vogel and the Cinema 16 and the creation of avant-garde cinema in this country, or writers like Parker Tyler, I mean, they were frequently writing about forms of extreme cinema or erotic cinema. And these are things that still, I think, can be a cultural time bomb. So certainly when I was at the Tate, I definitely did a lot of programs dealing with sexuality, and some of it, you know, we did have to have the police come and sort of vet the film before we showed it. Um, but I think, you know, there are still things that, in a culture where it doesn't seem like there are many taboos left, they do exist, and I think there are certain, there is some kinds of material you can screen that can cause enormous offense and really create a stink. Um, and I think that's a good thing, and I think, you know, we should be encouraged to try to show challenging material. Um, I, think, I think nobody said no to me either, but maybe I haven't been here long enough. Um, I did, uh, I did, I did one thing fairly early on, the first couple of months of being here, um, just to test the waters. Um, I organized a, a small series on political cinema and decided to just um, throw in a short film called The Case Against Lincoln Center. Um, that uh, was a newsreel from the 60s about um, this, the thousands of people who were displaced by the construction of this complex. Um, and um, most people thought it was okay, so. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, Light Industry is, is, uh, has a staff of two people. <laughs> and so it's, uh, I don't think, no, you know, no one ever, you know, uh, and our board is very supportive. So I feel like uh, um, no one said, uh, no to uh, me and Ed. I mean, we say no to each other, I guess, but I don't think that counts. Um, as someone who aspires to go into film curating and programming, do you have any advice on getting started in the industry or for any future professionals? Well, I don't know if I would call it an industry. <laughs> but, <laughs> no, um, we need a 
I mean, I think that, uh, I mean, you know, if you're, you're in New York, um, so um, you're lucky that there are so many things happening all around you. I think that um, uh, there's, there's no way, you know, that there's, there's sort of no, no way to learn but to uh, accept to do it, you know, um, which is to, um, you know, just uh, to, to be involved with um, the kind of uh, film programs that, um, that interest you. I mean, like I said, like my beginning was, you know, taking tickets at this film festival. And I think that, um, I guess that would be, um, yeah, that, that would be my advice. Like find, find your people. Yeah, I think there are, with just a sheer amount of stuff happening in New York, there are many opportunities to volunteer, intern. Um, yeah, and if, I think if you just attend these screenings, exhibitions, I, I think you'll, you'll, you know, there's, there's definitely a community of people who go to these things. Participate. I would say uh, find your voice as a, a curator, as a programmer. What is your voice? What is it, what is it that you want to say? You know, what is it that you want to affect in your audience? You want your audience to walk out feeling different to when they walk in, when they walked in. What do you want to do in order to, to, to make that happen? You know, what's, what, you know what, what do you want to see? Your voice as a, as a programmer or a curator is, is, is the critical thing. You know, what, what do you want to show? And then people will come to you. You know, you've got to draw an audience. How do you do that? It's, it's more difficult than you think, actually, to draw an audience because there is so much going on. And because there's so much going on in New York City, I would say focus, focus, focus. Focus on your voice and on something very specific so that people know that you're doing this and not that. And so finding out what that voice is of yours and, how, and bringing it out, I would say that's the key. Good. Um, I think we have to come to an end of our conversation. I would like to thank our four uh, speakers for coming here on a Sunday afternoon. And uh, thanks to all of you for um, attending this uh, program. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Nick Kemp and Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, please visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.